Hello, and welcome to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Ben Golliver. Andrew Sharp is still out on vacation, but I called in another heavy hitter this week. Uh, It's Tuesday, and I talked to Chris Ballard. He's not just an NBA writer. He's also a capital A author. He's got a number of books. Some of them are basketball. uh, Some of them are not basketball. Uh, His basketball books that you might have read or you should read if you haven't are The Art of a Beautiful Game, which digs into the craft uh, of the sport. You know, he's got little essays on Kobe Bryant, a number of other NBA stars. He's also got Hoops Nation, which is a guide to America's best pickup basketball. Uh, that sounds like a pretty self-explanatory title to me. Now, in this interview, which runs a little bit longer than an hour, Chris and I talk about a lot of stuff. I do want to give you one warning up front. We start off with some really heavy, uh, dark, uh, depressing type of material uh, in his story about Ryan Anderson and uh, his girlfriend's suicide, as well as his story on Monty Williams uh, and his wife's death in a tragic car accident. Uh, So we we lead with the heavy stuff just as an FYI for you guys. Uh, After that, we get into some lighter material. We talk about Sam Hinkie. Of course we do. We also dig into Kobe Bryant stories, Dirk Nowitzki stories. Uh, We have a little discussion about long form. Where is it headed? Uh, Is he still feeling like the longer pieces that he writes connects with his audience? Uh, And then also we dig into, of course, one of his favorite subjects, pickup basketball. Can you determine something about someone's character by sharing the court with them in a pickup setting? Chris is an expert on that subject. uh, And so uh, he gives a lot of insight on that. Stick with us through the whole conversation. Trust me, there's a lot of nice nuggets uh, in this, you know, hour-long discussion. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with SI NBA writer Chris Ballard. Hey, Chris, uh, thanks for joining me. I guess my first question for you is, you know, we're both writing in this kind of masculine NBA space. Uh, Most of the subjects of the pieces that you're writing about the NBA uh, are generally centered on men. and yet, when you look at the subjects of some of these things that you're talking about, whether it's grief, heartbreak, in some cases like Sam Hinkie, maybe a midlife crisis, uh, these are huge topics that, you know, I think the stereotype is that men don't necessarily talk to other men about. Uh, I'm wondering, what is it about your background or how you came into to writing that makes you interested in really swinging for the fences on some of these topics that maybe people would prefer not to discuss? And then... I want you to kind of play like self-psychologist too. Why do you think you've been able to uh, get your interview subjects or your story subjects to open up to you about these kind of big meaty topics that maybe they're not usually talking to other reporters about or even other beat writers about um, over the course of, you know, their daily life? Well, that's, that's one hell of a first question, Ben. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm coming out, I'm coming out swinging. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I was always really interested in the craft of basketball from the time I was young. I was that kid who would go out in the driveway. And when I was at that sort of age, we didn't have quite enough strength to get the ball to the rim perfectly. I'd practice. Okay. What if I shoot it two hands versus one hand versus a little bit sideways. So all that stuff always fascinated me. So that was like one Avenue of the things that I've ended up writing about, you know, covering the NBA has really been from a player's perspective because it was all this stuff that I was always impressed by. Like, how does someone do that? How did they figure that out? And then the other side of it's just been the, I guess, the the human stories that I was always interested in. I've never been quite as – I love reading about what happens in the league, the, the contracts and 
um, and how teams are built. That's all fascinating, but I'm not as interested in writing about it. I guess the, the ability to relate to these people that always seem bigger than life um, and, and how do you relate to them? Often you find those things that we all share, and especially once I became a parent myself. I've got two daughters um, who are 10 and 8. And then you can sort of feel like you can, you can get a sense for who these people are as humans, not just the craft part of it. So I, I can't say there was any aha moment. You know, there's, there's no childhood tragedy that led me to, to do that kind of stuff. Um, as far as drawing people out, you know, I think when I first started covering the league, I really did see them as, you know, I was 20, 25, 26, and I really did see them as these icons. I recall going and interviewing Chris Mullen, who was my childhood hero because I grew up in the Bay Area, and I was just <laughs> so worried that he would let me down as a person. You know, I was in a locker room, Indiana, and then he ended up being a really nice guy, uh, and he had his son there with him. And I had that moment. I was like, thank God this guy lived up to my expectations. But then what happened in the years after this, you know, quickly realized that, you know, they're all flawed humans. We all are, right? Um, and so finding a way to connect with them, not as okay, you are a commodity or not a, you are a hero. We're just all people trying to get through. Um, I think that, I think that helps. For sure. Well, one thing people are always talking about, at least when we get these you know, email questions from like journalism students is like, how do I build rapport? How do I get my network going? And it strikes me that when some of your pieces especially like with Ryan Anderson or, you know, with Monty Williams, I mean, these guys might be telling you something for the first time they've ever even said it, the first time they've ever got it off their chest. And it seems like that's not the kind of rapport where you get a good jokey quote for, you know, that'll lead sports center or a good jokey quote to kind of lead like a 500 word, you know, news piece, um, uh, you know, on the internet. I mean, this is a totally different type of rapport. And I'm wondering, is that something that when you're talking to say young writers, you can even give them tips to do, or is that just the product of years of doing it like you have? Well, yeah, certainly you can, you can try. Um, you know, a lot of times it comes down to listening, which sounds simple, but it's not it's really hard to listen for a long time. And uh, especially when, when I was younger, when everyone's younger, I think, and when you're in your 20s especially, um, there's this real urge to show off your intelligence. You know, to <laughs> oh, yeah. hey, know something about that, right? They're like, hey, I know this. Let me talk, right? And so, like with Ryan Anderson, there'd be periods of 20, 25, 30 minutes where I didn't say anything. There's a lot of, of nodding and understanding and occasionally redirecting. But it's amazing if you let people talk. People really want to talk. They often really want to open up to someone. But if someone starts immediately interrupting or judging, um, uh, it turns them off. So if you if you come into it with empathy, and you start a conversation, and you just make it open ended, and you say, you know, well, tell me what happened from the start. And then, that's one of the things I tell the journalism students uh, teach a class here at Cal. If you don't have a question, if you don't have some probing insight, you can always just say, what happened next. What happened next? Like you just take someone narratively through whatever it is you're talking about, even if it's their life story, what happened next will get you there. And maybe the interview ends up being a lot longer than you would have thought it needed to be. And maybe there's a lot of, you know, tangential extraneous stuff, but that's what allows you to get to that deeper level. You end up becoming 
I feel like it's, I often feel more like a therapist than, um, than a journalist at times. And you have, you have to be human about it. When, when someone tells you something that's heartrending, you know, hopefully you, you feel something for that. Well, let's take that Ryan Anderson uh, story as an example. Uh, how do you hear about that originally, or how did you first go about deciding, hey, this is going to be one of the big stories I'm going to work on this year? I mean, for our listeners who might not know, I mean, Chris, would you say it's fair to say you kind of specialize on a, a smaller list of stories per year, but you're really trying to blow them out into sort of longer features, you know, 5,000, 6,000 sometimes words? Yeah, yeah. Another, another way of saying that you work a lot harder than I do. Uh, no, no, no. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's like those are the stories. It's a lot of it's the, the planning and setting them up that, that takes a lot of time and, and getting them to getting getting the people on board. Okay, so so with that Ryan Anderson, what I mean, how does that even come together? I mean, when did you first get an inkling of it, um, and then how did you decide that you know this was something he was going to be okay with, and you were going to be okay with that too? That one was interesting. Uh, Ryan came to us. He came to Pete. I guess his one of his reps came to Pete Thamel, uh, and then Pete was like, "I'm not sure this is for me." Um, contacted me, and I spoke to them. Uh, and I think what had happened is enough time had elapsed and Ryan hadn't spoken publicly and he had this, you know, this feeling of, okay, now I want to say something. Uh, I want to put it out there, but I don't want to do it in a press conference setting. And I don't want to do it piecemeal. I want to have one big thing, which, uh, from the writer's perspective, uh, makes a lot easier when the, when the subject is interested and willing to talk like that. Uh, and so that what I had to go over with, with Ryan ahead of time was, you know, look, man, this is going to be hard because for a reader to relate to this and for this to have the impact that we want it to have, we're going to have to relive all this stuff that you, you know, that's horrible. And, and you're going to have to, the details are what's going to be important because the details are what bring it to life from a reader's perspective. Uh, And Ryan was amazing. And so I think he was, he had gone through enough, thinking and he'd done some therapy that he'd come to a point where he was ready to tell this. Um, and he didn't require a ton of, I wasn't, I wasn't going to ask him to, to talk about anything he didn't want to talk about with a story like that. It's his story. And my job is to be sort of the, you know, uh, fair and accurate and, and put it out there with as much, um, sort of empathy as I can, but also hopefully draw people into it. So they read 6,000 words of a really depressing story. Um, so that one, he was, he was ready. And then I recall sitting there, you know, like an hour of small talk at his, at his house, he was renting. Um, we started talking, I was sitting on an ottoman across from Ryan and he got almost in this trance like state that people will get in when they're talking about something and they're reliving it. And I could sort of feel and see him doing that. And, um, and he just kept going and kept going. At one point I said, Hey, do you want to, stop and eat? Do you want to do anything? He said, no, that's just, you know, I think it was, he just wanted to get this out. That makes sense. When you're in the process of writing, I mean, the one line that really struck me when I was reading your story and, uh, you know, it kind of starts off a section you write, the first thing Ryan saw upon entering Gia's fourth floor apartment were her knees. I mean, it's just very declarative and haunting. And, you know, you kind of go on from there. I mean, stylistically with this story, uh, it's like, 
just a series of gut punches. I mean, you're not really being flowery language. I mean, you're not kind of beating around the bushes. I mean, you're really going straight to it. Did you make that decision because that's how he had kind of told it to you and you wanted to kind of spread that to the readers? Uh, or was it, was it just the, the way it felt fair and accurate to do it, given that it was pretty complex? Yeah, to me, the biggest danger in these kind of stories is if um, if people get gratuitous, if they, you know, if they try to insert maudlin elements If a story already has a lot of power. You don't need that. And also, it's I think it's disrespectful to the subject if you do too much of that. You know, does that make sense? You know, so it, oh, often for, for the best sure. way to do it is just just be as as direct as you can. And also you want people to be in that, to see it the way Ryan did in that moment. And so Ryan probably wasn't stopping to put this all into perspective. He just walked in and and this is what he saw and this is how he saw it and this is what happened next. How did your relationship kind of begin with Monty Williams? It was during that story, right? With the, the Ryan Anderson story where you're finding out that uh, Monty had been really close to Ryan in the minutes, I guess, right after his uh, girlfriend's suicide. Is that how you first really became acquainted with him, or was it before that? Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever spoken with Monty. And, you know, Ryan told me that uh, the role Monty had played, and I was amazed. That's not usually a role a coach plays. You know, people who haven't aren't familiar, this was, you know, Monty ended up being the essentially the first person on the scene and the, the only person – Ryan could think to call in the city and they were both strong Christians and they had a bond, but you know, they only known each other a couple of years, but in that moment, you know, Ryan's longtime girlfriend uh, takes her own life and he's there and he calls his coach. And to me, that was so powerful, you know, and, and then so Monty races over there and he's the one who's hugging Ryan on the ground in this apartment. He's the one who's, Actually, I had to drag him out the door because Ryan didn't have the – he was he was so overcome, he didn't have the strength to stand. So, uh, you know, Monty and when the security guy from the team were, were dragging him out and Ryan has the, had these calluses on the front of his toes from that dragging. He still had them when I spoke to him. Um, and then he takes him home, and Monty essentially stays up all night with Ryan – in the living room, his kids are asleep upstairs, um, and he's just trying to be there for him. And so Ryan told me all this, and then I spoke to Monty, and my first experience with Monty on the phone was Monty just deflecting all credit for this for 30 minutes on the phone and, and just talking about what an amazing young man Ryan is and how pretty much at every step of that night, he was doing what his wife Ingrid told him to do. And at the time, I remember thinking – um, man, this guy is just, he's doing that thing that, that some athletes and coaches do where they just deflect, deflect, deflect. Um, later, you know, I came to find out that probably a lot of that was exactly what happened because of who Ingrid was in their relationship. For sure. I mean, we hear all the time, oh, the NBA is a brotherhood. And, uh, you know, you see these guys like this past week, you know, they're toasting each other at weddings and they're dancing and they're having a good time. I mean, that image that you just painted in terms of the brotherhood between former player and current coach and his player is was so striking. And I wonder, given that you had heard Monty deflect, deflect, deflect towards Ingrid, 
where were you when you first heard uh, what happened to Monty Williams's wife, the car accident that killed her? Uh, and what was going on in your mind, having already known this backstory previously, and certainly I imagine uh, feeling a lot of empathy towards Monty, given the back-to-back nature of uh, this Ryan Anderson situation and then his own wife. Yeah, it was just that was just brutal. It's one of those things. It's like Todd Heap, you know, and his kid. I don't know if you know the retired football player, you know, was it like three or four months ago who was backing out his driveway and his young daughter. I mean, just one of those things you read and you have like this physical reaction. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in Monty's case, knowing him even a little bit, um, you did, I, you know, you, you saw the outpouring from the entire NBA community to, to what happened. And so like, you know, that's, I remember, you know, shooting a couple of texts to a couple of people and, um, but I didn't, I certainly didn't, uh, I didn't know Monty well enough to, to think of contacting him for a while. Uh, in the Monty story, uh, you referenced a situation which, and I'm, as I'm reading uh, stories, a lot of times I'll do a little fist pump where like if the writer mentioned something that I thought as I was reading, they should mention uh, and I did a little fist pump when you uh, painted the picture of him on his porch after he got fired by the Pelicans, um, where they had just come off basically the best season of, of his coaching career. They had just come off their first playoff appearance. They had lost to a much better team, uh, but they had put up a pretty good fight in the first round against Golden State. Monty immediately gets fired. People are questioning the decision, and he's on his front porch taking questions from reporters at this low moment. And he comes out and he says, life's not fair don't expect it to be. Uh, and, and then you go on it and kind of tie that together with, you know, this funeral scene and, and how he's talking about his wife. And I was just wondering if you could sort of expand on uh, Monty's personality and his perspective. And you mentioned that the Spurs kind of always viewed him as uh, a little bit of a Debbie Downer, you know, kind of cynical. Um, and did it come through in that in that speech? And then uh, it seemed like he really kind of went to a different place by the end of it on this path to forgiveness um, that he went on. Yeah, it was, it's great uh, at this point to talk to Popovich for a story because he will immediately <laughs> give you the unvarnished truth. That even something like Monty Williams, which is a such a tragic story, when I spoke to Pop about it, and the interview ended up getting pretty emotional. But at the beginning... I asked Pop, you know, tell me about Monty when you first had him. He's like, you know, we traded for him from the Knicks, and uh, we thought we were getting a shooter, and it turns out he couldn't shoot a lick. And he basically was, uh, you know, just always looking at the negatives. I mean, he sort of trashed the version <laughs> of Monty Williams, you know, and, and uh, just a you know, downer, and we were trying to pull him up. and um, But that seems to be, a, you know, what, what you hear from a lot of people. And, and Monty, my goodness, like if you ask Monty about Monty, it's going to be, you think he was the worst guy in the world. He'll just tell you how everything nice people say about him. They don't know the real Monty and man, all the mistakes he's made. And he just tries to tell his kids about these and don't be like dad and all this kind of stuff, which of course that that humility is part of what draws people to him. And it's also what he's connected with other, other NBA athletes. Like I think a lot of his bond with someone like KD when they were together in Oklahoma City, um, you know, and Durant got injured, and there was Monty helping him work out and rehab back, and 
what Durant told me was like, you know, a lot of guys, they uh, coaches, they're either directing you towards what the team wants, right? They're stroking you a little bit. You can, you can see the motive behind it. You can see some larger picture, even if it's well camouflaged, there's something the coach wants you to end up doing. Right. And he said with Monty, like, Monty's just there as a human being with you. And he's talking about his struggles and, and there aren't answers. He's, he's telling you, look, that's, this is going to be hard. And we don't know, but every day you got to work at it and you never fix these things in your life. It's not like one day you woke up and you've always been jealous and you've stopped being jealous because you worked at it for a year, your whole life, you're going to be jealous. And you've got to find the best way to, to sort of moderate that quality in yourself. And these were the kind of messages Monty was giving players and they really responded to that. Um, so I mean, I've even forgot your original question, but <laughs> But to, to me, that was, that was the heart of Monty, was this, this ability to be a very successful former NBA player and coach and yet remain totally grounded in a way you could relate to, like, you know, you or I. When you're writing that story, and I'm sure you, you did a whole lot of interviews with him just like you do with Ryan Anderson, but then he does have this really public kind of outpouring of forgiveness where he, you know his speech at the funeral goes completely viral. I think basketball fans and non-basketball fans, I mean, everybody sees it. Does that present a challenge to you to kind of work that sort of a scene into your story? Uh, or how do you handle that? You know, How do you balance it with the reporting that you've done where he's told you other things one-on-one? Oh, well, the the funeral came, you know, relatively, that was, you're talking the funeral like 10 days after? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I waited um, a long time after that to contact Monty. So, you know, she died. There was a, there's a funeral. He goes into, uh, you know, essentially seclusion for months and months and months. Um, and then I reached out through um, some people to Monty but I waited a while. There was, there was, there was going to be no benefit to him, and it felt disrespectful to, to contact someone, you know. Um, so I, it needed to be, like, it felt like close to a year, with, you know, nine months to a year, and it needed to be on his terms. And so my message to them was, um, you know, if or when, if he, if he ever wants to talk about this, I think there's, there's something good that can come of it because of the power of his forgiveness, that 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 message will resonate with a lot of people. Uh, but if he doesn't, that's fine. Uh, you know, I, I certainly uh, can't imagine having to speak about this publicly. Okay, let me re- rephrase that. How, I guess how much yeah. after that time has passed do you lean on what everybody already knows and, and how much are you using his speech when you're in these one-on-one conversations to try to pull uh, additional information from him or do you view that as okay, everybody already knows this. Now I, I have to make reference to it, but let's take this in directions that people haven't seen. Yeah, okay. So yeah, the speech, was, I mean, it was so powerful. It needed to be the backbone of my story in some way because it was this um, this public moment when when he was so raw and to go up there and and, you know, express this forgiveness for the other family that led to a chain of events, people viewing this video and, and passing it around that like sprinkling magic dust, right? Where it goes out and, and had this profound effect on a lot of people. So that was in a way the, like the, the positive 
element to the story that was required, but it also was almost uh, like a false end. So if you were to take this horribly tragic event that comes in a life in which Monty's had a lot of a lot of tests and you know, a lot of things that have been very difficult for him. Um, and then he gives a speech and it could be this quote, sort of like happy end, but just by giving that speech, it doesn't change the reality that Monty's had to go through and his family's had to go through in the months after people may be sending him wishes saying, you know, that inspired me or helped me. And that's great, but he's still grieving. So to me, it had to be the, the backbone of his public message contrasted with the reality and this sort of the deep day-to-day hour-to-hour reality of of get you know you're not going to get over so working through grief like this and as it turned out one of my uh, best friend's wife uh, died a few months later unexpectedly as well Uh, and so I was going through it on a personal level with him the same time I was reporting this with Monty and I think the two it was it was valuable to me as a writer and as a friend to do both these things simultaneously I mean I think what you just said is a great point uh there's a strength in getting up in front of you know thousands of people and making the speech that he did but there's also a strength you could argue a deeper strength in letting somebody into your day-to-day life as you're going through this transition process you know letting someone like yourself be around the kids uh, see how they're interacting, seeing, you know, how some of the things like the the, the chores, the housework, how does that get done now uh, that his wife isn't there? I mean, that is really exposing yourself. Uh, you know, there's no preparation for that. It's just sort of like you're, you're laying your whole life bare at, at a very difficult time. You know, one thing I was glad that you mentioned uh, towards the end of the piece was this idea that he may search for love again, right? Like he may go out there and try to find another woman. I imagine that was pretty delicate uh, to talk about with him. And what's amazing to me is that it's um, her, Ingrid's, Ingrid's mom was the one who came to Monty eventually and said, look, you know, we want you to, to find someone else. You're in your early forties. These kids need that. She essentially released him. He probably would have felt this great responsibility. And so that it was like a gift that her mom gave to Monty. And so, yeah, obviously, even just in the period that I saw him, I saw, you know, I went out there in San Antonio in January and and that's 11 months after the uh, the accident. And then talking to him again a couple months later, I could see the difference in him, you know, sort of coming back to the to the world a little bit. But this is like a, a testament to Monty. Um, I went out there and I arrived on a Monday and I spent the day with him. I met his family and he was amazing. And I, I couldn't bring myself to ask about the actual events. And so a lot of it wasn't really an interview. It was, it was just sort of being there. You know, I went in and, and talked to the Spurs and, and watched him do his thing. And I you know, pick up his daughter at practice and drive her here and do this and do that. And it wasn't until the next day uh, and I think Monty could tell I was sort of, I was, I was very apprehensive about asking about it. And so he finally said to me, like, look, man, there's no good time to talk about this, but we got to do it. So let's do it. And that's, like, that's remarkable. Here you have a, you know, I'm supposed to be the, the journalist interviewer pulling things out of someone. Here's Monty worrying about me in that situation. And that's one of those details that 
lets you know exactly who he is. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to this therapist idea for you too, right? It's like these guys have a lot on their chest that they're trying to get out, and uh, the fact that you've got the trust there to to be that person uh, is phenomenal. I mean, you, you've had a very unique look here inside the Spurs culture uh, with Monty and with Greg Popovich. I mean, when you see how it's portrayed from the outside, uh, I mean, do you think there's accuracies? You think that they, you know, they're they're kind of seen as this not evil empire, but you know, very closed off to the media at certain times, uh, hard to read. You know, always played these you know strategic games. You know, kind of you know, chess masters. Uh, I mean, do you? I, I guess do you see some of those stereotypes ringing true, or have you seen a different side of San Antonio that maybe others haven't seen? I, I'd say both, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, you know. So yes, those stereotypes are true. I mean, I I think if Pop weren't um, so quotable and funny, and if he weren't such a good person, and that word wasn't so evident in X amount of ways, you would probably say, you know, I, I remember the days when there was talk about he's breaking NBA guidelines for media access, you know, uh, remarkably closed off. Um, and so if I'm a beat reporter, I'm covering the Spurs, I'm sure it's been an enormous pain in the ass, except of course, you know, like people like Mike Monroe and pop have had this good relationship because he's pop and he also gives you enough and he understands, et cetera. So it's this fine line that someone who wasn't as emotionally intelligent as pop wouldn't, wouldn't be able to walk well. And we've seen that with coaches, you know, that, that can backfire on them. So that's, I'd say that part of it's definitely true, but that spurs, system i mean it's really hard to find people who don't appreciate it or to a certain extent wish they were part of it right the the culture the values all that and for a while people thought okay that's as much tim duncan as popovich i think at this point we realize certainly tim duncan was a large part of it but but pop is the driving force behind a lot of it for sure. And like when Monty went back to the Spurs after this happened, it was one of those situations where like the light bulb goes off and it's like, of course he does. I mean, that would that would make sense. That's yeah. where he would be comfortable. That's where someone in his situation would. Hey, so on a lighter note, let's talk about uh, Sam Hinkie. I know we, we kind of were doing some deep dives on some maybe some dark topics there a little bit, but your Hinkie story is fascinating. And the one detail that we've always talked about on this podcast, we always go back to it. Uh, is this great rhetorical question you have from him, which is, why do we watch basketball games front to back? Why not watch games back to front or out of order? Uh, and to to me, that uh, that question it kind of symbolizes Hinky in a nutshell, because you've got, uh, you know, the I think the non intellectuals will just sort of laugh him off. You know, all oh, this guy is making these crazy. Um, you know, these crazy statements. I think some intellectuals will sort of back the gist behind what he's saying there in terms of, you know, trying to avoid narratives uh, and, you know, just really see what's happening, treating every moment as uh, equally important. And then I think there are still some intellectuals who are like, okay, we, we get his point, but he's still a little bit out there. He's still too far out there to be a successful executive in the NBA. I mean, can you tell our listeners exactly how much time did you spend with him when you're writing this story? And then which camp did you fall in? I mean, are you uh, buying what Hinky's selling, or do you think there's something missing here that uh, may have contributed to his downfall in Philadelphia and may prevent him from having the kind of success that, in the NBA anyways, 
that his intellect would suggest that he should have. Well, it's fascinating, the, the response to that story. Uh, the people who didn't like Sam saw in that story all the evidence they needed not to like Sam. And the people <laughs> who like Sam saw all the evidence for why he's amazing. Like the, the range of responses that generated uh, shocked me. I guess it shouldn't have shocked me that much because he's, he's uh, you know, he creates such a, a contrast in emotions and feelings. I love Sam. So I got... I don't know if you call me an apologist, but I'm a I'm an admirer. Um, uh, you know, I think there's as as he realizes well, there's mistakes he made and there's approaches. But overall, uh, you know, I, I think the way that he views life and the way he approaches basketball, but also just planning in general, is is really impressive. Um, and yes, it, he's he's someone you can make fun of pretty easily, uh, but I, I don't think that should take away from it. So to give you the background, uh, I first met Sam, you know, I don't know, 12 years ago, something like that, when he was in Houston, and he was that guy, and I'm sure you know this, like all the other all the other writers in the NBA know this, Sam was that guy when he was assistant GM. He was amazing. You could talk to him for 45 <laughs> minutes. He would sit, sit with you on the side of the court and watch the players warm up and just give you – just gold, like reporter's gold, all the context and the numbers uh, and insight. And it wasn't all data. I mean, he would be giving you human insights. And so I, I'm sure, you know, if you talk to Zach Lowe, if you talk to Leah, anyone who's dealt with Sam, they realize really quickly, A, how smart he is, B, how passionate he is, uh, and C, it, it's not about him. So I would talk to him for various stories and uh, and his name wouldn't appear in the stories. It would be a story about, you know, Rockets or Daryl Morey or when I wrote a basketball book, a chapter on Yao Ming, you know, Sam Hickey was integral in that. When you read that Michael Lewis story about Shane Battier, that's Sam Hickey right there, right? Um, so he was great. Uh, and, and sort of developing that relationship over the years. And then he moved out to Palo Alto, and I sort of you know, contacted him and said, hey, should grab lunch? And so we grabbed lunch one day down in Palo Alto. It is one of his favorite little spots there. Uh, and, you know, at the end of lunch, I said, hey, well, if you ever want to, do something. I think it'd be interesting to write about your your life after you know, sort of post Sixers. And I expected him to say no because he always said no. I mean, every time I would go to him, he would say no. I wanted to write a book about him. I guess when he first arrived in Philly, I thought it'd be fascinating to to embed with the Sixers. And I promised Sam I would only write the book at the end of it. You know, so you'd see this inside view, and there's all this. Oh, like the cultural stuff going on between traditional Philly sports fans, and he had this audacious plan, and he'd tell you all about it, but not for the record. And you'd be like, "Holy, you know, can we swear on this podcast?" Oh, of course, let it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it'd be like, "Like, holy shit, he's actually going to try to do this," and then he would, and that's what was amazing to me. He would say, "I'm going to do X, Y, and Z." And you're like, "There's no way, no, no way." He's going to try to do this. And then he would. And so I found that so fascinating just from a, almost like a lab test perspective of this guy's going to try to do all this crazy stuff. Let's see if it works. Um, but Sam had always said no. And I understood it. He wanted to you know, retain his competitive advantage. But then at Palo Alto, he said yes. And so the idea was I'll just shadow you doing what Sam Hickey does. Uh, and so we, you know, I went along the meetings that he had and, you know, took hikes and, hung out and went to cops, just all the kind of 
his life. But it was still, even then, it was still pretty regimented. There was no, like, I wasn't going to his house. Uh, he didn't want me meeting his wife and kids. So he still had guidelines, but if it was within his work life, it was good. And so I'd go to these meetings, and we had a deal where it's like, I'll sit in. I won't be disruptive. If there's anything at the end you wouldn't want in there, you let me know because I don't think it's fair to spend days with someone and then get some gotcha moment, right, of something they said off the cuff that can be misrepresented in print. Um, And I think he was expecting – uh, a shorter story originally, and then as we got further into it, it became clear there was more there. Well, I think it's a testament to your writing and the details in that story that the people who don't like him were able to come away feeling fulfilled, and the people who do like him are able to come away fulfilled if you know, you're know you painting yourself as an apologist. I wonder, now that you've spent that time with him, what do you make of the big manifesto uh, that he put out? Uh, you know, I, I don't know necessarily if you want to apologize for that or if if you think it was over the top two or uh, just, I mean, how do you square that with the guy that you know and, you know, what some people kind of painted as like these insane ramblings or excuses for uh, what he was trying to do or just all over the map. And I think some people did try to poke holes in some of the quotes that he was using. Are these even real quotes? Uh, I mean, you remember there was a huge flap around that, uh, you know, right at the time where, you know, basically he was exiting. Uh, you know, what's, what's your general take on that? I mean, do you have any insight on that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Sam's, Sam's take on that is like, look, that wasn't meant for public consumption. Um, and that point, I think is pretty valid, you know, like that's, he wasn't writing it so that we would read it and react. And then it got leaked. Um, now as a, just a, a piece of writing, uh, I think I would, generally agree with with people who think it's it's a little nutty right that's a little little far-reaching <laughs> yeah but I, I i don't personally i you know i see that more in a matter of i don't know if you know people like this there are people i know who are really good thinkers uh or maybe fascinating in person and then when they write it turns into something different so if, if i like in reading that if I were to have this conversation with Sam Hinkey that lasted three hours, he might tell me essentially everything in that document, but the way he did it would make sense. And you, like you or I would come away from it being like, ah, it made sense. That's how Sam thinks about the world, et cetera. But when he put it down in paper or whatever on, on a, a laptop and wrote it like that, and you read it from the outside, then you're like, oh, this is wacky. There's not context. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it's both. Would, uh, you know, he's definitely proud. He definitely doesn't think he made mistakes. And you can argue, you know, in, in hindsight, he was probably right. Um, certainly, I, I think at this point, it's, it's hard not to say he did a pretty good job. So this was, I would say, some kind of like a, hey, you know, look what I actually did here. Uh, would someone recommend to Sam to have done that? Probably not. Um, but it also remains just this amazing artifact <laughs> that that we have. Um, you know, how often do, do we get that? Like this is that's the best thing of the NBA. Like this, think about the last two or three years, from Hinky to Lavar to LeBron and Draymond. Like just, it has been so entertaining overall. Well, for sure, and like, I mean, how 
rarely do we get that direct of a line into their thinking from the GM side. I mean, we hear players, we have better access to players and what they're thinking and their spats with their fellow players uh, more and more every year. It seems like, I mean, just look no further than the LeBron versus Kyrie thing here recently, uh, you know, but we rarely get that from the executives, at least in the moment. And it was a really fascinating look at where his mind was. I also think your point about how he communicates in person versus writing is fascinating because you look at his track record, he's like the most unconventional uh, GM of all time in terms of how he's trying to build his roster. And yet at the same time, he's like defying every writer convention there is. And that could be uh, some of the reason why maybe his greater points were missed by people was just because he was so you know unconventional on how he presented it in the written word. I guess uh, the big question here, and I think it's kind of the takeaway question from a piece about a guy who is maybe in between jobs. And, you know, you're mentioning in the piece, all these other opportunities he potentially could have in Silicon Valley and and so forth is if you were an owner, would you hire him? I mean, would you trust a franchise to him knowing everything that comes with him? I mean, realizing that this is not a conventional, you know, by the book, uh, you know, NBA lifer, uh, that this is a guy who, you know, you look back in the Philly tenure, I mean, there definitely was a logic to what he was trying to do, but certainly critics could point back and say uh, it wasn't a success. Uh, would you hire him? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you know, one of the things I heard a few times in reporting the piece from other GMs is the next team that gets Hinky is the one that's the lucky team because, you, you know, like anything, you do it once, you learn from your mistakes, and if there's one guy who's got, like, the growth mindset and is going to learn from his mistakes, it's Hinky. You know, he is, he, he's going to evaluate everything he did and think about how he could do it better the next time. It's not going to be, let's roll out the same plan. It'll be, well, what's, what's the next competitive edge? How can I do this? Um, and, frankly, you know, finding a good GM is really hard. There's only so many qualified people to do that job. And here you have one who's done it, who's learned from his mistakes, who's going to put in crazy hours, who's going to be, you know, hopefully uh, a little better in the the public sphere than he was the first time. I think that's probably the the biggest knock on him. Um, Yeah. You know, that's, that's something I heard again and again from people is this is the, this is the, the version of Sam that'll be super successful. So I would, yeah, obviously I'm, I'm biased in that regard, having, having seen how his brain works and, and it hurt it all, but, um, uh, you know, it'll depend on the situation. He needs owners who believe in him. I don't expect that in, with most situations he would do something similar. I think he knows it was sort of a one-shot deal, but he would probably find another really interesting way to approach the problem. Yeah, I was reading back to some of your stories uh, in your archive going back a long way. And if anyone out there is listening, if you want to spend an afternoon, just if you're trying to kill the time at work, just go to SI's vault and read Chris's stuff from basically any point in the last 17 years because he's got it covered. Anytime somebody retires, I inevitably stumble across a piece that you wrote in like 2003 that like perfectly encapsulates them. But one piece I found from 2008 about Kobe you well, led off with a thanks, great thanks line. Thanks for making me feel old, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> no, no. This, you're a living legend. That's that's what I'm going for here. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you, you, lead, <laughs> you lead this story about Kobe with the line, I can get off at any time. That's what he says uh, after game one of the Western Conference Finals. Uh, and you immediately 
uh, kind of say, you know, granted, Kobe's just being honest, but tact would dictate that he let others say such things about him, sort of rather than him saying that about himself. And when I went back to read that, it struck me, uh, first of all, how much it seemed like you like writing about Kobe. It seems like you really like writing about both him and Dirk. Uh, but it also struck me, his tact gone from the NBA? You know, I feel like a, a line like that in, in 2017, it might not have led your story. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It, it has changed, right? I, I feel like the athletes are more interesting, uh, at least in terms of, we're talking about personalities, more interesting, more intelligent, um, funnier than they've probably ever been. I mean, like, Barkley was hilarious and remains hilarious, and he was as a player. But at least, you know, the last – I started covering the league in, what, 2000? There was a period there of where there was this crackdown by the league, essentially let's clean up the image, and there was a PR push. Um, and so there, players were guarded. Some were, you know um, – so it's definitely saw the media as, as the enemy. You had a lot of those prep-to-pros guys who came in and their whole life had just been basketball and they would later become interesting, you know, like Garnett and, and, you know, Kobe was a bit of a, an anomaly in that, but players would come in and, and they just, there wasn't much there, there yet. There wasn't a life story. They weren't learned lessons. Um, and they were just sort of spitting stuff back at a reporter. Now I think all these players have grown up in the age of social media and, and you need to have a quote public voice yourself early on. And it's great. And part of that is that there isn't much tact, which I think we're all we're the beneficiaries of it as fans. Like I love it. I think there's been no better time to be an NBA fan, um, certainly in my lifetime. And I, you know that the fact that the summer has been all about the NBA tells you as much as you need to know. For sure. When a guy like Draymond Green comes out and declares that he's petty and that's why he gets into these wars with LeBron James and the Cavaliers and people, you know, by and large are cheering him on like be petty or be petty or we want it. We want it. It says a lot about both the NBA, but it says a lot about us, too, I think, as a society. Uh, you know, you chronicled Kobe uh, a lot, and especially towards the end, you had some really big pieces about how is he coping with injuries? Um, you know, what's that mental battle like? You know, I went back and found one story, and you know, he's trying to talk himself into Carlos Boozer and Jeremy Lin as being the pieces that are going to help him, you know, make the playoffs. And it's like yeah. that, you know, that was probably a tough period of his life. But you also saw him at the highs, you know, the championship highs where, uh, you know, he's winning, you know, five titles with the Lakers. I, I'm wondering which Kobe did you like the best? Was it the brash, young, nobody can guard me Kobe? Was it the honest and introspective, you know, people are prostrating uh, themselves to him in China because he's kind of a god and, and he's on his, uh, uh, you know, his uh, kind of tour around the league, you know, getting close to retirement? I mean, which version of the Kobe did you like the most? It was a couple years before the end that I liked the best. And by the end, he was, you know, there's too much of the sort of self-congratulation and he'd already gone into this whole my next level and it was just, thinking about branding and he'd become, I felt like Kobe started as a persona. He was a kid trying to be Michael Jordan and he came in and he had this sort of fake persona. And then there was Colorado and the rape case. And it, it sort of stripped him of whatever, you know, Sprite marketing persona he thought he had and it stripped him down bare. And then he decided, okay, now I'm going to be a villain. And that was a really interesting period when he was being a villain um, but then out of that villainy, when he 
processed it and he got his title came this combination of probably the closest, I think, to like the real Kobe Bryant that we've seen. He's, he wears a lot of masks. But you got this guy who was like, okay, now I've accomplished that goal, which was winning without Shaq. Uh, he's getting up there in his in his career, and that's where he got to like the I, I don't I don't give a shit phase. I'm gonna tell you guys what I think. That was my favorite Kobe. He wasn't yet thinking about the end and legacy, and you know uh, whatever those laminated cards were he put out the last night. You know, and the the Kobe brand. <laughs> yeah. He was he was in he was at that point where he was just gonna be that guy who was a veteran, he still had all that competitive fire. And he saw that crazy self-confidence. That guy was fascinating. And he's, I, mean, I always, I think Kobe's one of the more interesting athletes um, of our generation easily be, because of his mindset. But that to me was really interesting. And, and to see how he would approach things, you always knew, I went to Kobe for a couple small quotes at his story on Dwight Howard. And I had this feeling like, to me, the, the inherent problem with Dwight Howard we summed up in the fact that in the dunk contest, he let Nate Robinson dunk over him, right? Like, who does that? <laughs> You're trying to win the dunk contest, and you're going to let Nate Robinson dunk over you to win the contest. Like, who does that? Like, what, what competitive individual would ever do that? And, but I don't want to say that. So I'm like, I, I bet if I ask Kobe that question, <laughs> he will give me the answer <laughs> I want. And it was like, I went in the locker room. I had one question for Kobe. I hadn't seen him in like a year or two. I asked him, and I forget exactly his quote, but it's like, fuck no. I, I was like, you know, no. I, you know, like, and that was a great. There, that's, that I need Kobe for that. I did a story on Papa Shot. I knew I needed one quote from Kobe, and I went and got it. Because he just, you knew that's who he was at his core. That's awesome. Hey, am I right that Dirk might be right on that Kobe level for you in terms of your favorite guys to write about a document? I mean, I just, Dirk's like, he just is a human being, right? I think there's, there's, that's my favorite NBA Twitter account is Dirk's because it's just, you know, self-deprecation after self-deprecation. It's a great thing he posted earlier this summer, him on some, like, cruiser bike in the hills with his sunglasses on being like, everyone's out doing their crazy workouts. Check out my new ride, you know, something like that. Um, and he just, to retain your, your sense of, humor about yourself and humility while being this crazy driven athlete who's one of the most famous athletes in Germany. I mean, that's amazing to me. And he's, he's funny, he's lovable. And you can, you know, I think it's probably underappreciated just how hard he's worked to get where he is. I love the question to ask other people um, in, in the NBA world of who has most maxed out their natural physical talent doesn't matter if they had that much around. It could be like a seventh man, right? Uh, and I feel like sometimes, like, if you, who are the really good players who did it? You know, Kobe's up there. Dirk's up there. I think Yao is up there. I think Steve Nash is probably up there. But that's always, to me, a real sign of the great ones. You know, like, how good, how good could Shaq have been if he'd actually maxed out his physical talent? Yeah, and it's always one of those knocks in like the greatest of all time list debates where it's like, well, if you didn't max out your your talents, maybe we should we got to dock you for that. You know, I mean, there shouldn't be that what if. I mean, we should feel pretty comfortable. My question for you on Dirk, though, uh, you mentioned underappreciated his work ethic. And I'm worried that even though he won the title, and I think a lot of people, when it happened, they felt like, okay, this seals his career, this seals his legacy. 
he's no longer this soft guy, yet this European player who can't win. He's no longer just a jump shooter. I mean, th- this kind of takes him to a different level. I'm still worried that legacy-wise he's going to get forgotten a little bit. Like with a player like Kobe, I mean, obviously the five rings helps, but the personality and the huge you know, kind of cult fan base and uh, I think the swagger uh, all will help him just kind of go on forward indefinitely, right? I'm worried that with Dirk, it might not be the same thing, especially the way the game is going where there's going to be – you know. Uh, an entire generation of stretch fours. Nobody necessarily playing the game just like he does, uh, but you know, he was the innovator, right? And I'm worried that he's going to be viewed as one of many uh, and maybe not given the proper respect that he deserves, uh, you know, once we're, say, 10 or 15 or 20 years into the future. Am I being paranoid, or, or do you share any of those concerns with him? Is this a future where Dirk is no longer playing? Yeah, well, I'm saying like way deep into the you know his retirement. Like when we're looking back at yeah, you know, no, I'm, I'm just let's say he re- yeah, Dirk, yeah. Dirk, Dirk probably could play four more years um, with his height and and the way the the way the game is going. Um, yeah, you know, I, I see that. Uh, it's weird what we end up remembering players for, right? Like Dirk might end up being remembered more for the one foot wrong foot step back because players emulate it. And he might be remembered primarily for being the first seven-footer who really shot threes, then all the rest of it, uh, which would be a shame. Or he might end up being branded as just the first great international, you know, I think the first international player to win a title and MVP, right? So maybe that ends up, however we do it, it won't encompass the, the full Dirk. And I, but, you know, I mean, what do we remember Carl Malone for now? It's, it's weird what ends up being, you know, what a nickname and that he didn't win the title and that he scored a lot of points and that he was part of Stockton Malone. That's probably what ends up being the, you know, and that's, that's not fair either. Like Clyde Drexler, what do people remember Clyde Drexler for? Um, these, these things over time uh, have a life of their own. Yeah, I am worried that he's going to get uh, forgotten. And people, read what Chris has written on Dirk. You won't want to forget Dirk. Uh, we're running out of time here. I have a couple more questions. Uh, we always have readers or, and listeners email in to say, who, who could win and pick up, me versus Sharp one-on-one? And the answer is always <laughs> either it's either Rob Mahoney or it's Chris Ballard. That's just the answer we give. It's like we're not even in this conversation with the real hoopers. Uh, you wrote a book about pickup basketball. You still play pickup basketball, if I'm not mistaken. I'm wondering, do you ever use pickup basketball as like a proxy for judging people's character? Like, do you have your set of like, uh, you know, mores or regulations where if guys do A, B, and C, then they're good people, or if they do, you know, X, Y, and Z, then they're bad people? Uh, do you take it that far? Probably too much. <laughs> I've long thought <laughs> that you could you could get someone out on a on a court and immediately find out their true nature, and that's probably going too far. But there are people. You know, it was a guy I wrote about once, John Rogers Jr., who is in um, Obama's inner circle, uh, been extraordinarily successful in his life, done all kinds of things. Uh, one of his claims to fame: he played at Princeton, but he's sort of a short, scrappy guy. Was he beat Michael Jordan? This game of one on one, ended up writing a a point after about it. But John Rogers Jr. ran this um, enormous company. But one of the things that he would do is with new hires at a certain level, he would play pickup basketball with them, get them out on the court, because he felt like it revealed their character. 
Um, and so I certainly I, I see that. Like if you go play with a bunch of media scribes, you'll notice things about them pretty quickly. Um, but oh, dish, dish. Let's is... hear this. Let, let, let's get, let's get the dirt. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I could tell you, you know, for example, people that I met early on, primarily because the media basketball games. It was you know the old old crew would be like you know, Watt, Mike Wise and Rick Buecher and and Chris Broussard and and Isola would come out and he wouldn't necessarily play that much but he was always hanging out and and, and he was a good dude and then Spears would occasionally show up and, and you know post everybody up. Uh, Casey Johnson who covers the Bulls is lights out player really that's a guy I remember playing with the first time and being like that's a guy I like because he was unselfish, uh, played good defense, didn't take it all too seriously. Um, but yeah, as a general life philosophy, I mean, I know the majority of the really good friends I've made in life, we play basketball, uh, and they're people I like playing basketball with. Well, so let's dig into some of these rules. Chris Ballard's rules of pickup basketball etiquette real quick. So defense, move the ball. Clearly those are, those are the good category. Give us some more good and some more bad. I mean, we have a lot of listeners who play, you know, they want to pass your test. They don't want to fall into that, you know, <laughs> getting dumped, getting dumped by you in the three on three game because you're, they're not pulling their weight. So let's hear it. Self-awareness is the most important aspect. I think of any pickup player we've all played. So, you know, you might play in a game with four players where you should be shooting the ball a fair amount because for you guys to win, you need to carry the offensive load. Right. Um, and then you may go play with four other players where your role really should be to set up X guy on the wing and, and dish the ball and play good defense and then maybe create an opportunity or two. And players who recognize that pretty quickly and inherently are super valuable. And those are the same guys you'll see it in the NBA, right? You know, uh, versus the Nick Youngs of the world who might think at all times that they are the number one option. And occasionally that's the case. Uh, and so it's no fun to play with people who can't recognize what their role should be. And it's so much fun to play with players. You see this a guy like Draymond Green, right, who's going to recognize most of the time, what does the team need for me right now? Um, you know, Battier was great at that. Uh, you, you see, and you'll see it at any local Y. And so I love going to the gym. I play here in Berkeley. And, you know, you sort of like make the teams the beginning and you try to get those guys on your team, and the other team's always like, oh, I'll take the three scorers. You take all the scorers who are going to bicker about shots, and I'll take all the, the team guys. I love it. You sound like a GM. So uh, yeah. the other thing I was going to ask you about that, attire. Okay, it's easy to stereotype based on attire. Like you're mentioning these Nick Young types. Like if guys show up in shooting sleeves, is that just an automatic wrap? Like are you already looking a different direction? Or do you do you look for certain things when it comes to how they're dressed or how they present themselves? Does that factor in or no? Uh, anyone who's wearing an, an NBA jersey to a pickup game, probably a bad sign, right? Um, okay. okay. Uh, yeah, any, anytime, anyone who's got headphones in prior to playing, unless they're actually legit and they're doing a warm-up, uh, it's probably a bad sign. I've played with guys who wear headphones while playing. That's definitely a, <laughs> a bad sign. <laughs> um, you know, certainly jeans, occasionally someone can pull that off. Uh, but uh, that, Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've played uh, – a lot of pickup games um, in my life. Too many, unfortunately. My body is 
is uh, putting up a fight. But uh, it's, I don't know, I feel like if you, especially if you cover the league, that ability to go, like, to watch great basketball and then go play shitty basketball, I didn't care. Just that ability to transfer it is, uh, is one of the rewards of doing it. I love it. Oh, man, I'm taking diligent notes. Our listeners are eating this up because uh, usually we just have to argue if I can post Sharp up with my bad knee or if he's going to be able to run circles around me and, and you're giving us the PhD version of uh, pickup etiquette. Okay, so last question here for you because I know you got to go. Uh, there was this debate recently online about a thousand words, right? You know, does anybody want to read more than a thousand words, less than a thousand words? And I talked to Lee Jenkins about this a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, "Well, I better defend the a thousand words, otherwise, you know, we're going to be all living in cardboard boxes at some point." Um, I and I saw, you know, you had some comments about the thousand word debate, kind of standing up for length and detail and and all of that on Twitter. Uh, I guess my question for you is you know, first. When you're looking at some of these pieces, how do you decide what the right length is for a Sam Hinkie profile or a Ryan Anderson story? I mean, do you decide that beforehand or after you really start putting the piece together? And then why should people in this mobile society and, you know, social media and just nonstop hot takes, blah, blah, blah. Why should people continue to want to read these longer pieces uh, what what do you think is unique about them that they can't get anywhere else? Well, I don't think it necessarily should. I mean, I'm I'm very biased because I write those pieces. Um, but as a uh, as a reader, I feel like there's more there's more really good long stories than ever before. And unfortunately, there's also a lot of bad long stories. And there's nothing worse than a six thousand word story that really could have been boiled down to fifteen hundred words because We've all got limited time. So um, that, I think that's, that's the rub of it is how do you know as a reader whether it's worth it or not? Well, it's great. You know, you that long form and long reads and, and Twitter and whatever, your, your buddy who sends you the story, that usually is a good filtering device. Um, as a writer, I, I think you sort of know during the reporting. Um, at least that's the way I've seen it. But, you know, that said, you can telescope almost anything. If you go back, you know, Rick Riley gets some grief um, these days, and, and, and some of that's definitely earned. But when I first got to SI in 2000, I remember Rick was doing that point after column, which is like 900 words in the back of the magazine. Um, and I think, I think it was something like he would have between 8 and 12 ideas for that spot every week, and he would kill himself over it. And then he would research, often research, really deeply for it. And I bet a lot of those could have easily been 5,000 words, the ones that he reported. Some of them he sort of tossed off, and some of them were more jokey. But some of the ones that he really reported could have been a lot longer. So almost any story can be telescoped up or down like that and, and figuring out which ones are worth the upper limit. And that's why, I mean, it's like, this is, sadly, it's a luxury, but it's having good editors. And like, if you... If you've got a good editor to tell you ahead of time, look, this is this should not be this long and and this is superfluous and this is, you know, the writing here is a little you know, navel gazing. Um, that's great. But sadly, with the industry, that's becoming rarer and rarer. You know, like a lot of times people just have to write a piece and post it or editors are so overwhelmed that they don't have time to go through and do a really careful edit. Um, there's still some out there. Some, some publications and writers, and certainly like at the New Yorker, for example, where, where that's happening. Uh, but it's really tricky. 
you know, and, and my process is generally to, to structure it out and look at it. And is there a, a narrative arc and do we have scenes and do we have, is the depth of reporting warranting this? If it's not, maybe this isn't good. Um, maybe it's just 1500 words. Um, but that's, that's probably one of the, one of the toughest things to do is write long well, because you have to keep a reader going the entire time and you, know, you can't lose them for a paragraph. You know, they have no obligation to read it. You know, it used to be, you got sports illustrated, you know, 30 years ago. And that was it. Like that was your, might've been your sports reading for the week. Now, you know, we're fighting with everything. I mean, how can, how, who's going to read sports illustrated when they can, click on the latest Trump news right now. And it's like you're fighting for attention with, with, uh, with so many other factors. Yeah. I had a really interesting situation with that, uh, yesterday actually. So I spent all day Sunday writing a 2000 word piece. And to your point, you know, it, it probably would have been better at 1400 if I had really cut it down. Right. But, uh, it's on X's and O's of the Rockets offense and what can Chris Paul do here to, uh, maybe help them have the most efficient offense uh, in NBA history, not even just the number one offense next season, but you know, they've got a shot at that. Right. And then uh, as I'm going through that, I realize oh, I've got all this MVP stuff from Daryl Morey that uh, doesn't really fit into this piece, but he's upset about Harden not winning the award. I'm just going to put this out as like a 400 word newser, just so that all the aggregators will pick up the, the quotes and, you know, maybe it will take off. And, Lo and behold, I wake up the next morning and everyone is talking about the MVP quotes. I'm not sure anybody read the longer piece. And, you know, for someone in my position, I, I've come to expect that, you know, like you got to do a little bit of both. Um, uh, but it is a little bit deflating, right? I mean, it's a little bit depressing. And I'm wondering when you're talking to younger writers about whether it's the future of long form uh, or even younger aspiring authors, you know, people who want to write books, um, what is your message to them? I mean, are you still hopeful about where this is going um, or not? Well, I don't know about the industry, but I'm, I'm uh, all in on storytelling. That's sort of how I see it is, and especially if you're going to go into, say, the world of sports journalism, you either have to become really good um, at reporting and obtaining information. That's one route. You have to become really good at analysis would be route two, which would be understanding every part of the league and be able to write it up and being funny. I mean, obviously this is where you and Sharp are both excellent. You know, I think Sharp's got a, uh, the guy's not here. I'm supposed to bash him and so I'm going to, I'm going to credit him here, but yeah, being able to integrate humor into, into coverage of something like this is, is a rare ability. Um, so you become that, or you become a storyteller and then those skills are transferable anywhere there's transferable to video transferable to, you know writing a book a, a podcast anywhere once you become good at telling a story um it doesn't really matter what you're covering so that's that's generally what i tell people is you know there's no newser anymore you don't want to write a newser if you get too bogged down in trying to imitate whatever the, the hot sort of element of the industry is in that day that's not going to work either you know bill simmons got big and everyone wanted to write like bill simmons and then, you know, well, they couldn't. Uh, or some people could do a decent imitation, but hey, be Drew Magary instead. And Drew is really funny, but then don't go try to write like Drew. You know, write like yourself. Um, find what's passionate, what you're passionate about. Follow that. And don't try to do something else. Like, I'd be horrible at 
trying to get scoops. Yeah, I just I'm not good at it. It wouldn't be my wouldn't be something I'd be interested to get up and spend all day calling GMs. But man, I'm really glad that there's people out there like Woj and Mark Stein who are good at it because I love being a consumer of that. So, you know, do what do what gets you up in the morning. You know, what gets you fired up to do it. Are you still feeling like there's an audience for it too, or has that waned? I mean, the, the longer form stuff, or or have you seen? Because like you mentioned, there's there's more good long form stuff than ever before. There's also more bad long form stuff. But are you feeling like you're still getting the same reaction to it? Because um, I that's a question that I get from people who are just interested in the industry in general. It's just like, uh, is there an audience, you know, or is, is this all going to kind of a least common denominator format where if it can't be summarized on a little infographic on Instagram or 140 word tweet, uh, sorry, 140 character tweet, then, you know, this is not something that I should be, you know, kind of pouring the years and years of, of blood, sweat and tears into uh, to kind of make it happen. Uh, I mean, are you still feeling like people are, are finding you? Yeah, I, have, I can only speak from like, you know, the, the narrow perspective I have, right? But uh, I think the last four stories that I've written that would qualify as long form for SI have done more whatever. According to, to Dollinger, you know, they're, get, uh, they're, they're getting more engagement. Is that the word we use now? <laughs> no, readers, I don't know, right? Uh, but people will read them if they're, if they're, um, if they think it's worth their time investment and if they're told it's worth their time investment. So I guess that means you just got to get better and better. And I, I don't doubt there's a readership there. I think people are sort of growing to, to expect to read two kinds of things. Like the thing you read while you're waiting in a line at a coffee shop, which is click, 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 click. And it might be something on Twitter. It might be, you know, whatever it's going to be really short. And the thing you read when you get on the subway and you're like, I got 25 minutes. Well, now I'll read this, right? And I think those are going to be the, the spots, uh, but there's a lot vying for that 25-minute spot. And it, it might be a podcast, might be something else, right? So that's, that's – it's tricky, and certainly, you, can, you, you know, there's more good writing being produced than any of us can consume. So I don't know the answer to that. And certainly the industry isn't necessarily rewarding financially – that so if you're a young writer looking to go into this, you certainly wouldn't do it expecting <laughs> to do it for um, any kind of financial reward or career stability. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna be in debt early. It's like that's not the reason to do it. But if you love it and you feel like it makes a difference on some level and you can get this reward out of it, personally gratifying, then yeah, do it. Perfect. I didn't mean to grill you there. I just wanted you to get that message out because I know that you love it and I can, you know, it comes through in your writing and I think that your readers uh, can see it. And I think that young writers want to hear that message too. I mean, they want to feel like uh, it's been worthwhile. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Uh, everyone, you can follow him on Twitter, SI underscore Chris Ballard. Uh, Chris, anything else you want to plug? Any books you want to send people to on Amazon? Uh, no, but I would say... You know, uh, I will plug the crossover, you know, the, the work that, that you guys have done in the last year and a half. I, I feel like that, you know, every day I can go to our own website. Company, man, but it's totally 100% true and learn something new. And, and watching you and Mahoney and Sharp and, and Rohan and Jeremy and that whole thing grow has been really fun from the perspective of a guy who's 
who's been around for Wild SI. Um, so it's uh, go there, check it out. Um, it's great stuff. Man, getting a, a plug for an, from an unpaid podcast guest. I mean, we're really lucky here. We appreciate that, Chris. Uh, check out his books, The Art of a Beautiful Game. Uh, it has scenes with Kobe Bryant, a number of other NBA stars, where he really digs in, like he said earlier, to their craft. And also check out Hoops Nation. That's his pickup basketball book. You already heard some of his uh, do's and don'ts of pickup basketball on this episode. Uh, those are both on Amazon, and I'm sure many other places as well. Chris, have a great day, man. I really appreciate talking to you. You got it. Thanks, Ben. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.